Hello, welcome to Pardon the Sound podcast. On today's episode, we have singer-songwriter Drew Kennedy. We got to sit down and talk about his songwriting, his process. Um, the one thing about Drew that is notable is he is a wordsmith. He loves lyrics. Um, and it's evident when you listen to his catalog. He will take a small moment in life and he will paint it so vividly that even though you can't see what he saw that led him to writing this song, you have a picture in your head and you know exactly what it looked like. Or at least you have some perception that I almost guarantee it's close. And that's really the magic of Drew Kennedy's songwriting. And I think if you have not heard Drew's music before, go check out At Home in the Big Lonesome. It's a great album. It's become one of my main rotation albums. Um, and yeah, Drew is one of the coolest, most down-to-earth guys that I have talked to. And this conversation was really fun for me, and I think it was fun for Drew, too. It was just when COVID had started and that we had first been quarantined. So I think both of us were very refreshed to talk about something that wasn't COVID and just enjoy talking about songs. So I hope you hear that, and I hope you feel that in the interview, and I hope you enjoy it. All right, let's go. But I have been based in New Braunfels, Texas for the last 15 years. Okay. I was reading that and not knowing, like, the exact history and being able to track it all down online. I was just like, okay, so Colorado to Nashville, is he traveling back and forth? I was yeah, trying to I add am, that all up. I, I do. I go to Nashville every other Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. Very um, cool. Yeah, I fly out of San Antonio. San Antonio's like the airport's about twenty five minutes from my house here, and uh, and kind of do that. And the rest of the time, I'm on the road or at home. So when you started writing songs, if we go back to the beginning, even before songs, how did the whole musical experience start for you? Was it guitar? How did you find yourself knowing that that's what you wanted to do? Yeah, it was definitely guitar. My freshman year of college, I walked into my dorm room and my roommate was playing this music on our stereo. And I just kind of like was walking around in the room and dropping my backpack and listening to it. And the story was really, really vivid. And the production was really sparse. It was the song uh, by Robert Earl Keane called um, The Raven and the Coyote. Okay. And um, I had never heard of him before, and I had never really heard that style of songwriting or that style of music before. My family uh, is not very musical. They're music fans, but not very deep music fans. And I asked my roommate, you know, who is this? And he told me, and I said, how'd you get this? And he was, I went to college in Virginia. I grew up in Pennsylvania, um, and my okay. roommate was from North Carolina, and he said that his brother had given him the CD, that he had just seen him not that long ago. And I was shocked that music could connect to me that deeply and yet not be something that I would hear on the radio. It was before I was even aware that 
there were musicians that weren't, you know, going, trying to be top 40 pop country, whatever artists Mm -hmm. or, or doing like covers in the frat scene in college. Um, and, and so he gave me the CD and I just wore it out. And then I was reading through the liner notes and I started finding other artists that were very similar. And then I went with the same roommate. I played baseball in college and so did he. And I went okay. with the same roommate. Uh, we had like one weekend off a year and his home was like an hour south and mine was five hours north. So I went with him for the weekend and we went to this bar where his brother was working his way through law school. And I I was excited to be 18 in a bar uh, because his brother got us in. But there was a band that was playing and it was pretty crowded. And that band uh, was called Whiskey Town. And okay. so that was Ryan Adams, you know, like formative band. And after see, like watching like six or seven songs, I just thought, I want to do this. Mm-hmm. I want to do that. Whatever that is, I want to do that. And he was playing a guitar. So I got a guitar. And that's what I set about to do, to try and do whatever that was. Okay. So so that's interesting to me. So it seems like a really late start, which is surprising to me because obviously like reading the lyrics that you write, listening to the songs, they're very polished and well-written. And did you say that was your freshman year in college? Yeah, it was. It was a very late start. I mean, Interesting. I, write, I write with guys now that are like 23 or 24, and I just think like, holy shit, like if I could have been that good when I was 24, imagine like where I might be now, which is a, obviously it's a dangerous way to think. You Everybody right. matures and grows in their own pace. But for me, like I started then and I just woodshedded for years. I, I would write a song every day and make my, my poor roommates or my poor buddies listen to this terrible stuff that I was writing. <laughs> um, but I've always had the kind of personality that like when I find – when some when I find something to be really enthralling, it's a cannonball off the high dive for me. Like there's no dipping your toe in the edge of the water. If I find something that captures me, I'm all in. And it was like that for playing the guitar and learning how to write songs. And I think it also took a long time for me to develop because I didn't have anyone musical around me. I was a jock. Um you know, playing baseball and there in my friend group, there wasn't anybody that was musical. So I would like, I would learn by reverse engineering songs I heard on CDs, like how I'd listen to something. And if it caught me, I'd try to figure out on the guitar, what the notes were, like how the chord progression moved or what about the lyrical cadence or the melody I found interesting. And then I would try to parrot that in another song. And so I was just teaching myself and it just took me a long time to get my foundation, I think. Sure. And how long do you suppose it was that you were writing songs, you know, giving it a go and your roommates are listening to, you know, probably you in a dorm room or apartment. Yeah. Putting together parts and replaying this part and rewording it, retooling it really workshopping it. 
how long were you doing that before you realized I'm really comfortable with what I'm writing and I know, I mean, maybe you're not yet. I, some artists never are, but where you're comfortable, sure. where you're like, this is good. What I'm doing, what I'm doing well, is good. So I heard, I heard that song when I was a freshman and I got my first guitar when I was a sophomore. And so at the end of being 19, at the start of being 20 years old, from then to the first song that I ever ended up keeping and then recording was three years. Oh, So literally three years of writing every day until one song stuck. But then if you go through my catalog of albums that I've recorded, I don't think I really figured it all out until 2010. Okay. When I made this record called Freshwater in the Salton Sea. So writing those songs that ended up going on that and then recording that record, like if I were to pick and if somebody were to ask, like, where's the beginning that I should listen to for you? That's where I finally felt comfortable and thought, okay, I've got this figured out. So, I mean, we're talking a 10 year period of, really trying to figure out my voice and how I viewed the world and how it came out in my songs. Um, and it's funny because in, in between Freshwater and the Salton Sea and getting my first guitar, I recorded three albums. And uh, there are a lot of people that love those records, but I just hear somebody that has no idea what they're doing, um, <laughs> you know, and like, like just trying to figure out how we should sing or how he should play, or what he should write about. And and then it wasn't until 2010 where I think the guy, you know, being me, I finally got my feet under me. So when it, when it came time to write those songs and you figured out how you wanted to write and what you wanted to write about, ultimately, what did that end up being? And, and how did you come to that decision? Because I think that's something songwriters and musicians often struggle with i know what i see a lot and what i feel when i try to write myself Mm -hmm. is okay one day i'm really into these john mayer records next day i'm listening to your stuff then there's days where i'm listening to super heavy stuff so when it comes time to sit down and write something it's hard to find yourself in a lane that feels natural so how do you come to that decision and realization that you found your voice and you know what what led you to that yeah you know i decided pretty early on that the thing that excited me most about popular song was the lyricism of it yeah and so so i fell in love really early on with the great, in my opinion, the great lyric writers of, of my, you know, of, of who I could find, like going back to Guy Clark, uh, and then moving as far forward as John Mayer and people that were putting out music, like right there, like John Mayer played this little school I went to called Hamden Sydney college when I was a senior and he had just released the single for your body is a wonderland. Mm -hmm. But immediately like that was a guy where I was like, yeah, that guy puts together words in a way that makes me excited. So I am way in to that. And so I haven't worried too much stylistically about where my voice would be or, or where my songs would go. The concern 
well, not the concern. The direction for me has always been in chasing the wordplay, in chasing how you use the language to convey whatever feelings or observations or uh, stories you're trying to convey in your songs. That has always been um, the thing that's attracted me to uh, being a songwriter. And thankfully, because of that, it's allowed me to kind of wiggle around within the boundaries of a few different genres without feeling like I wasn't being myself. Because I can put on a Guy Clark record and listen to Dublin blues, which is very sparse and obviously country and very poetic and feel like, okay, this is my music. But then I could put on uh, a Ben Folds five record and listen to how he's putting his words together and think this is my music or a John Mayer record and think this is my music. And the common thread is that they're all great lyric writers. You know, you could listen to a Carol King record or, uh, you know, the, the, the list goes on and on. If it's a great lyric writer, that's something that I was interested in. And and I never thought, like, like I, I like wearing a, a vintage pair of cowboy boots and jeans, and I like pearl snap shirts and denim and shit. But, <laughs> you know, like, I just dig that stylistically, but I don't think that I'm an actually a cowboy or a country singer. Right. Right. I, I, I just love lyrics and I love the way a pedal steel guitar sounds or a banjo or, but you know, so, so those things show up in my songs uh, and other people that gravitate towards country music might gravitate towards what I'm doing because of that. Mm-hmm. But I've always just been like, well, I like that. I, I think that's awesome. And also, the, the the side note is, country music has really been a safe haven for really great lyric writers, going back to the beginning of it as a genre. Um, so I've naturally gravitated more in that direction sonically because there was more for me to learn from or hear or enjoy uh, than, you know, like if you listen to a lot of, 80s pop Mm -hmm. there's not a lot of great lyric writers in there but there but you know but like the bruce hornsby's or the jackson browns or the huey lewis's that were very popular at the time aside the mass majority of it even into the 90s there's not a lot of great lyric writing with the exception again of like in the 90s ben folds or so i was just always fascinated with the words and how the words played off of each other and how they they put together and how they worked within the melody. It was always so fascinating to me. And that's, that's what informed where I was headed. um, Once I kind of got my feet under me. Right. And, and to me, it's pretty evident. I mean, I listened to at home and the big lonesome. Uh I listened to that twice today to kind of just even really zero in on some of your words. And I'm terrible at remembering lyrics, even to the stuff I do write. But there <laughs> are stuff, there's so many points in those songs where like Cream and Sugar, you say something like a jingle of the bell hanging at the door. I look mm-hmm. at your eyes, one part blue, two part green, something mm-hmm. similar to that. I probably yeah. butchered it. And no, you got it. And to me, you're you're painting such a vast picture 
of such a minute part where I'm listening to it and it's like you're at coffee, you're waiting for a date, and oh, you hear the jingle of the bell, she's walking through the door, and it's such a minute thing, but it has such a big impact to paint the picture of just nervously waiting there. And, you know, it really, I guess basically what you just said is really well represented all over that album, and I'm sure the others too. Um, so I find that amazing. What, when did you start to really feel like you were crafting things? How long did it take you to develop that ability to zero in on such small details with such, I guess, big representation? Like yeah. That? I, um, that's a good question. I, 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 like, it's kind of my nature, I think, as a person to, like, when I think of people or places, there's always a very specific part of the memory that my brain hangs on to, I think, that kind of catalogs all of it. Sure. For lack of a, I mean, that sounds way too clinical than it than it is, but like, <laughs> Like, you know, if you were to mention a friend of mine who had, like, particularly striking blue eyes, like, their memory is filed under striking blue eyes. Or, like, you know, when you're walking around and you smell something mm -hmm. and it immediately takes you to a very, very specific moment in your childhood or in yep. your life, like, that's that's how my brain and all of our brains, I think, really— that that's how I catalog things uh, in in my memory. And so if I'm writing about it, like if the idea is, okay, we're going to write about this um, situation where this guy's going on a blind date and he's waiting for his date to show up and he's nervous and she's late. How would I, if I am that guy sitting at that table – um, how am I going to remember it? And I'm going to remember it because her eyes were one part blue and two part two parts green or the, the jingle in the bell, you know, like announcing the arrival. Like they're, they're, those are the things that if I'm remembering a specific moment in my life are the things that um, harmonize with with me and with my memory. And then and so I just I mean, I just try to imagine myself in some of these situations. If I'm not writing a song from first person experience, uh, how would I describe it? Like how would my brain file it away? That If I saw somebody with that kind of color eyes, or if I go into a coffee shop that has a old school bell that rings in just that kind of same frequency, what am I going to think of? I'm going to think of that girl. And, and that's kind of where I, where I get my, foundation for how I write those songs. But I mean, I didn't, I didn't know uh, it wasn't something that I intentionally tried to do. It's only something that I've, I've started to try to figure out by doing like, like what we're doing, like with a podcast, you know, somebody asks you a question, like you just asked me and like, you just think like, gosh, I don't know. Why would that be? And maybe yeah. it's because of this, you know? So yeah, that that's where I think it all comes from. Sure, it's almost like a preconditioned emotional response. I think you're, I think you're onto something. Believing that we all operate that way a little bit. Mm. Um, so, I I do know that you've co-written, obviously a lot, probably more than I'm really aware of. 
I mean, you did the Copa Chico Cowboys Volume 1 with Josh Greider. Yeah. I, did I pronounce his name correctly? You nailed it. Oh, my gosh. I'm killing it. <laughs> um, so how often are you co-writing versus writing by yourself? You see, my being a Minnesota kid who is very sheltered on Nashville big-time songwriting. Yeah. The way it's been described to me by some teachers, I have this teacher I went to college with. Uh, I went to school for music production, and mm-hmm. this uh, great songwriter, Kevin Bowe, was one of my teachers. And he, uh, he used to describe it, and it almost felt like Nashville songwriting. He said, you know, I knew how to write songs, and then when I moved to Nashville and I wrote for a publishing company for a while, then I was around guys who taught me how to write hit songs. And not saying that every song he ever wrote was a hit. That wasn't what he was getting at. But it almost paints this picture of in Nashville, you punch your time card, you walk in, you sit down, you write the songs, you co-write, and then you leave. And hopefully you really have something at the end of the day. Yeah, that, so, I mean, that's so the co-writing, the co-writing uh-huh. to me is, you know, how, how is that different for you guys? And how accurate is that? Um, well, I mean... That's my I perception, by the way. Sure, uh, absolutely, and it's not—it's not, it's not a, a wrong perception. Um, I didn't even like really understand that co-writing happened beyond knowing that, like Bernie Taupin and Elton John, sure, like Excellent. wrote all their stuff together. Um, until I started going to Nashville, like I would take these meetings, um, and this was like 2012 or something. I take these meetings. And I'd be sitting there with the publisher and like the idea of walking in with a CD or something to give to them seemed like really strange to me. So, um, so I would walk in with my guitar and, um, and I would like sit down and play them songs. And after every song, uh, they would, they would be like, wow, that's great. Who did you write that with? And, and I'd be like, I wrote it by myself. And uh, they'd be like, Are you, you wrote you wrote that the whole song by yourself? And I'd be like, uh, yeah, that's uh, I, yeah. And so, like, I couldn't figure out why, um, like, there was a there was a shocked response to that. <laughs> and it turns out that, like, Nashville's holy whole thing is is um, uh, is co-writing. It's, it's getting people together to 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 collaborate. And so so my introduction to that was. Um, was again once I was kind of getting my feet under me and figuring out who I was as a writer, um, and so once I started doing more things in Nashville, I started co-writing more. Before then, just about everything I wrote by myself, with the exception of a couple of songs that I wrote with a couple of buddies who were also doing what I was doing, like Josh Greider, for example. I've been writing songs with him for fifteen years. Mm-hmm. Um, so so there was always a little bit of that, but it was never the focus. And then, like, the thing that gets the songwriter, I think, from the um, from the solo, right? In Nashville, they always call it the 100 percenter. The solo, right, into the idea of co-writing is that first time where you sit down with someone um, or maybe a group of people, maybe it's three, two or three guys, and all of you 
your brains kind of sync up in the same way and you're talking about this idea and you're all seeing it the same way and you you experience the joy of creating something with other people that you know is pretty good as soon as that happens that's something that you kind of get hooked on because the whole time you write by yourself you're writing and you're thinking oh i think that's cool that's 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 cool right yeah i think that's cool that this feels good i think this is the right way to say it and there's never any answer to that it's always you like doubting yourself in your head saying gosh is this right i don't know if this is right and then you get in a room with with other guys and you write this song and you feel like what you are doing is really good but you're also getting the feedback in the moment would be like i the, the like every co-write i've ever been in in my life someone in the room will say i don't know if this is it but and then they will say a line and it's brilliant <laughs> yeah. and that's that, that's that like solo writer in your head saying i don't know if this is cool or not and then you put it out there and then your co-writer is like holy shit dude that is brilliant and you're like <laughs> oh i thought it might be i didn't know you know like you start getting that feedback and so the coolest thing about co-writing with somebody is when you're trying to crack the code of a song, you're, you're trying to figure out the puzzle. And th- there's always going to be like that one or two lines where like it's kind of elusive. And then finally, like somebody will get it. The mm-hmm. idea of sharing a moment of elation like that after working on trying to crack the code of a song for five or six hours with a friend of yours is wonderful. And so the short answer is co-writing is great among a group of people that you know and love and trust because writing songs is fun because hanging out with your friends is fun and doing both of them at the same time is even more fun than doing them separate. And so um, it's just become this thing that I'm exceptionally thankful for in my life, um, even though it's been... I mean, on the timeline, I've only been doing it for eight or nine years, I guess. Right. Wow. That's a, that's a really good picture. And honestly, I, I don't know that I expected that sort of answer. Um, yeah, man, that's fun. That's, that's really cool to hear. Fun. It's so much fun. It's almost like instant gratification existed way before the internet only it was co-writing in Nashville. Oh, it's true. And so, you know, so, <laughs> you finally so, hear what you need to hear on the stuff you're writing. That's right. And, and but the funny thing is, everybody can get so excited in the room because you have a good. The room feels great, and and then you you know you have all those moments, and then the next day you wake up and you listen to the work tape or whatever, and you're like, uh, I don't know if this is good. This no. might not be very good at all. And um. And sometimes it happens, but you wouldn't trade how cool it felt in the moment and how good it felt in the moment for anything. And so, you know, not all of them are going to be hits. Yes, your your teacher is right that um, you def- – like my – I've been very lucky to write with um, songwriters that are older than me that have experienced uh, writing hits over several decades worth of – uh, the music business. And I've always walked into those rights, not necessarily with my first goal being that we write a hit, but with my first goal being that I want to learn something from this person. 
because he or she has figured out how to make a living through their songs over decades as styles change, as um, flavors of the month change, like as all this stuff changes, they have managed to be relevant. And if I can learn something from them about how to make not a song commercially successful, but how to remain relevant as a writer through decades, then I am ahead of the curve. So I me- I heard you mention like spanning a career. Well, hang on, hang on. I'll edit out that lack of thought because I just remembered what I was thinking while I was yeah, yeah. listening to your answer. <laughs> I stopped yeah. thinking about what I was going to say because your answer was so good. Huh. How about that? <laughs> Conversation uh, listen, 101. Listen to that Midwestern politeness coming right through. Conversation 101. Um, <laughs> so anyhow, I, I've heard it said, you know, writing the hit, this and that, when you have co-written those songs and you kind of get that instant gratification where you're all looking at each other in the room and it's suddenly apparent to all of you in the room, whether it be, I'm assuming you've done that with one, two, three, or four people or however many Mm-hmm. that you've written something cool when you finish that song and the ones that when you finish them you know they're good or you feel like they're good have you ever then i guess what i'm trying to ask is when you put out a song that you co-wrote like that together where you all felt good about it how often does that translate to people coming back afterwards saying that song we love it you know just general music listeners versus when you're by yourself and you don't have that confirmation with the group have you noticed a a trend where you see that it translates more with the option of co-writing versus by yourself uh you know what or maybe it's Um, hard to gauge at all well it's not because i play a lot of shows like i i i think i did 170 shows last year and i love taking songs that i've just written and performing them at a show just to see what kind of feedback you get. Because sometimes you're writing a song and you know it's good, but it's it's way too specific. It's mm-hmm. about something that might be way too specific in your life or your co-writer's life. Or even if you're just writing it by yourself, like you know that there's something good about this. And then you take it to a room of 300 people or 400 people and only like four or five people really love it. But the funny thing is those people will always really love it mm-hmm. versus sometimes like with cream and sugar, you brought that up earlier when we were finished with that song, I didn't know what we had just written. Uh, it, 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 like I just didn't, I didn't have a good read on what the song was when we were done. And then the next day when I listened back to the song, I thought, oh, my gosh, this song is great. Mm-hmm. And then I thought, i got to play this at my next show just to see if I'm totally wrong. And I played it at the show and then selling merch at the end of the night. Like 10 or 12 people were like, what's that song? When is that song going to come out? That song was great. And yeah. then you're like, okay, maybe I'm onto something with this one. Um, so you can like, at least I can, thankfully get some real time metrics on whether or not I'm reading the pulse of what people want to hear in the right way. And 
and again, like even though I'm writing in Nashville, when I when I get a song for me to perform, I have no desire to become the next superstar. Right. Like I'm really happy with where I am, with the number of people that I play for, with how I play my shows, just me and a guitar telling stories, playing songs. I love that spot. Like that's my spot. And when I get a song for me that fits that spot these days, that is never going to be a song that is going to play, I don't think, in the mainstream market. And um, and so it's, it's really refreshing and freeing to be able to kind of test whether or not your instincts are right with your crowd. But I'm never going to know if my instincts are right with the mainstream crowd until I've written a hit. And I've yet to write a hit. You know, I've written with hit writers that would be like, dude, I'm telling you, this is a hit. And that gets me excited because they've had hits, so they should know. But I've never experienced what it felt like to start, uh, like, from the beginning of a song and write it and then have it demoed and then have it pitched and had it put on hold and then had it cut and then make it a single and then hear it on the radio and then watch it climb to the top of the charts. I've not yet experienced all of those things happening in a line. So I'm not really sure how a hit song is put together, but I do know if I've written a song that connects with my audience because I get to play as often as I do and, and share what I think might work with them. That's awesome. I, I think what led me down that path is it's very evident very quickly to people who know me or talk to me that I'm kind of a John Mayer nerd. And he yeah. has he has a great story. As a as a guy who let's face it, he's tried to write hits. Um, that's his goal. Um, yeah. he had this great story about his second album, the record label coming back and saying, you know what, come back to bed isn't the single, it's daughters. And his reaction was no, Daughters is just track nine on the album. That's not the single. It's not mm. it. I wrote the perfect song here. And then his kind of learn lesson that he gives out to some songwriters is the general public is always smarter than you. So kind of hearing that, you know, you're getting to sit down and write with people and you're in a small group of congregated like minds that are writing songs, you know, I yeah. figured there was a way that if there were four of you all kind of agreeing, yeah, this is the idea or two of you, there's more likely that when you play at your show of three or 400 people, you're going to walk away and be like, yeah, we were right. You know, more often that's just where my analytical mind went there. Yeah. Um, I, I heard a quote by somebody one time that said, um, nobody's ever written a hit song by accident. Oh. which I thought was a very interesting thing to say. Um, but but that's the funny thing. Like, Daughters is a great example because it, it can connect to so many people right. that that had have been a daughter, that has a daughter, that is married to someone that is somebody's daughter, whose mother is somebody's daughter. Like, it is this really brilliant way to write a song about just about everyone you know were guys, that is a woman, 
um, just about everyone that you know that is a woman. And if you want to talk about touching on universality, that's a pretty damn good way to do it. And right. the amazing thing is, he wrote that song probably just feeling like it was something that he wanted to say, and he had a good line, and he did what he did because he's a great songwriter, right. and he wrote it. And th But then with... With the other one, he was like, all right, I am writing this because this is the single. This <laughs> is it. And when he turns the record in, everybody at the label who has been married or has a sister or has a mom or has – so it's everybody – thinks of that person as soon as they hear, fathers, be good to your daughters. You know, like – uh they all connect to it. And they're like, well, this is the single because we're all connecting to it. Yeah. And that kind of feedback, especially the higher up the food chain you go, um, is invaluable. Like that's, you know, that that's the kind of thing that. Um, well, like you said, learning from the people you're working with being poor goal. Yeah. That's, like if, that's a if, learning situation. Totally. Exactly. But you talk about like you can see John Mayer's progression as a songwriter like um what's that song uh i think it's called my stupid mouth yep that has um we we bit our lips she looked out the window rolling tiny balls of napkin paper yep. i played a quick game of chess with the salt and pepper shaker like that is never gonna be the feel-good hit of the summer but for lyric nerds like me, yep. when I hear that, that's the moment where I think, this guy, this guy is somebody that I'm going to pay attention to. Because you you like you talk about like the color of her eyes or the bell above the door. That's the same thing in yep. that song. But even better, like I played a quick game of chess with the salt and pepper shake. Like, first of all. You don't play chess quickly unless they're making you. It's a, a timed game. There's a bunch of pieces. He only has two pieces. You know, like everything about it is so brilliantly crafted that the lyric nerds stand up and they're like, okay, this is it. This guy is genius. But if you surveyed 100,000 John Mayer fans that were hardcore John Mayer fans, yeah, I bet you 1% of them might say, that's my favorite line he's ever written. And the rest of them are going to, the majority is going to quote, you know, one of the choruses from one of his, you know, Your Body is Wonderland huge or with like, or yeah, like the huge hits. Right, right. Yeah, that's exactly it. And that, that example from My Stupid Mouth is the whole song is about saying something stupid and crap getting awkward or shit hitting the fan. Yeah. And right. that's just a small encapsulation of that feeling with the salt and pepper shaker. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's, it's, it's how do you, how do you pass that awkward moment that you just created? She's doing it by th looking out the window thinking, I wish I wasn't here and subconsciously rolling up the napkin. And you're just looking down thinking, why did I just say that? And you just <laughs> rearranged the salt and pepper shaker because it's the only thing in front of you. Right, right. It's, you know what I mean? Waiting it's for such the moment a, to end. <laughs> yeah, it's such a brilliant way to describe an awkward moment. Yeah. And yeah. also, uh, it shows someone that has experienced a fair number of awkward moments <laughs> to be able to nail it that quickly. Right, right. So 
with with some of those lyrical ideas in mind, have you ever thought of it this way? And this is just me being curious. Have you ever thought of it as creating a new cliche? Well, yeah, I mean, cliches are cliches because there's truth in them. Right. And if any of us as songwriters, you or me or whoever, could write something that becomes so repeated that it becomes cliche, Mm -hmm. um, we have exceeded beyond our wild expectations. Yeah. You know, like, like that is... Like that's the hit of hits, like a, a thing, or you know, in, in the language terms of things, who somebody wrote a, the first cliche, like right, like any cliche that we've heard, mm-hmm. someone wrote that, someone came up with that, and it got repeated so often that the phrase was ubiqui- ubiquitous among our society that it became cliche to say that in response to that situation. But if you trace the lineage of that thing all the way back, someone came up with it. Someone wrote it. That Mm -hmm. person, you know, even in linguistics, it's for not, you know, you don't get the billboard, the billboard charts measuring the metrics of, of your one-liners. Sure. The, 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 like the, the linguistic track of it goes back to one person. And so the songwriter hopes to do the same thing with his or her idea in song, to write something that becomes part of the social consciousness that features lines that fall out of someone's mouth when that exact uh, scenario, which has to be general enough that it happens a lot, comes up, is completely the 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 dream come true. If I could write a song full of new cliches, mm-hmm. I would have flown on my private jet to your house and we could have done this interview face to face. I don't know that anyone wants to be in Minnesota right now. So, <laughs> well, I, we, I, are you kidding me? We can't be anywhere right now. That's I would true. love to be in Minnesota right now. I would love to be anywhere other anywhere than else. Place. Yeah, fine <laughs> with me. And I love Minnesota. I I played. One of my favorite shows ever in Grand Marais, Minnesota. Oh wow, that's you've you've touched a base. I don't even know where that is in Minnesota, okay. and I if live you go, here. If you go up uh, through Minneapolis through Duluth, and you're following the the shoreline, yep. it's like I don't know. It's like sixty miles south of Thunder Bay. Okay, it's way up there. Yeah, you see, I'm the rare Minnesotan who never grew up in. You'll learn about us cabin culture. Everybody uh-huh. has a cabin up north at a lake. My family never did. So really, I moved from southern Minnesota to Minneapolis, stayed here, and I love it so much that I've finally become ingrained after like 10 years of living here where it's like, oh, I should probably venture north and see what that's all about. <laughs> see what's you up know? there. You know, yeah. I, I say that in my thick Minnesota accent right now. I, well, I should venture north, Yeah. Well, it's funny when I went up there. It was um, it was probably Ju- July or maybe August, and Texas was a hundred degrees every day. Oh, yep. And Good time it was to leave. like, yeah, it was like seventy degrees. It was beautiful, and I was sitting at this bar before my show, and it was like just me in this little place, and it was right on the lake. And um, <laughs> I was like, this place is beautiful. Like, I can't believe. Like I've never like how do not does not everyone want to live in Grand Marais? And he was like, oh well, you know we we have about uh, two and a half months of that 
and then uh, the rest of it's the rest of it's pretty unbearable. And I was like, oh, I got gotcha. you. We are pretty far up there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's funny. <laughs> yeah, that's funny. I actually had a similar experience. I went to Seattle once, and I was there in June. Yeah, and- so it's perfect. Yeah, it was a sunny day. It was 75, no humidity. We're at, you know, a Mariners game. It's beautiful. I turned to the guy to the left of me, and I was just like, is it like this every day? Are they lying about this rain stuff? He's like, I don't know. I'm from San Antonio. <laughs> <laughs> that's funny. So, yeah. That's funny. Um, the, but, yeah, the new cliches, that's uh, one of the songwriting things that, you know, that same teacher told me and yeah. when I was discussing this stuff with him, because I did an episode with him, we uh, he was write, co-writing a song with someone, and what they came up with, they were writing this like heartbreaking song, and he was just like, "There's a line in it that just crushes me, and it's you know they don't make love like they used to, not for girls like me," and it just hit me hard. I was just like, "Well, that's so simple, but I've never heard it said like that before," because. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't make, they don't make love like they used to. Well, then you can assume that's about, you know, love making and something sexual. But then this next line of the word is not for girls not like for me. Girls like and it's me. just like, wow, serious inadequacy in there. And it's just so deep and so simple, oh, but so yeah, complicated, dude. you know? Well, it, it, the brilliant, the brilliance of that, of that structure is just like you said, like the first thing that you hear makes you think of sex. But mm-hmm. then not for girls like me immediately makes you reconsider your earlier judgment to think that maybe she's talking about chivalry uh, not being what it used to be or, you know, the idea of what she had instilled in her as far as what love should be by her grandma or whatever. But like that's a that, that that's a brilliant line because it front loads it with a with a really deep emotion and then then breaks your heart in in a second in a second after you know the the instant gratification that you think of when you think of making love with somebody not for girls like me after that oh like that's i mean that's exactly right yep and if uh if heartbreak became the biggest trend in the world then a, then something like that would absolutely become one of the new clichés yeah, yeah. It's interesting stuff, all this songwriting. It's the small it, straw that breaks the camel's back on that whole idea in the middle. It of the is. Line. It is, um, and I love talking about it. Yeah, and and I guess, like, to me, when I think of new cliches, I, I hate to keep going back to Cream and Sugar because I just, you know, I listened to it multiple times today. Yeah. But the... The end of the chorus where you're like, guess I'm going to need more cream and sugar. That is so, that felt like one of those good cliches to me where I was just like, oh, this is a good situation, but, you know, let's make it sweeter. Give me more cream and sugar. That's the way I took it. Well, you might be right. I I have thought about that, but I do get people on social media sending me pictures of signs that they come across in cafes or shops or whatever that say cream and sugar on it. Oh, really? Yeah. So maybe, maybe you're right. I hadn't thought about it, but, um, yeah, man, I, I don't know. Like I said, when, when Davis Nash and I finished writing that song, like I just, 
I felt like I had just finished taking the SATs. Like I felt yeah. really drained and I shouldn't have because it didn't take an incredibly long time. And it was one of those things where you listen to it the next day and you think, oh, man, like, how did I not walk out of the room and jump 10 feet in the air with excitement? Because this might be it. Right. Right. And and that album. So I'm assuming there was a fair amount of co-writing. Um, but reading, again, your bio last night, it sounds like you were pretty much recording that and then you had to leave to go back for the, you know, the yeah. birth of your child. Yeah. When that happened, did you leave? They, it sounded like in the bio that they kept recording like the studio musicians and you just kind of put your trust in that process. Yeah. So, I mean, I, it, this was my first time to work with a really, really, um, high level producer. And that is not to say that I hadn't worked with great producers in the past, but um this guy, Dave Brainerd, just every pre-production meeting, every amount of time we spent together just continued to prove to me that he was really an actual genius, not in the cliched way. Right. And we worked really hard in, in picking the right players and 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 so my wife was pregnant and she, because of a medical condition that she has, any pregnancy is going to be high risk. And so that means that you're going to a couple of different doctors, at least seeing one a week over the course of the pregnancy. And we went to see one of them the day before I left to go to Nashville to do it. It was going to be there for five days and it was pretty early on. Like it wasn't, Mm-hmm. normally when you'd think, okay, baby time. And the doctor was like, yep, you're good. Every, I like everything. I'll see you on Monday. We're, we're, we're looking good. And I, and I went up there and we started recording and literally we got one take into open road. And my manager at the time came running through the door with my phone, which was in the control room and gave it to me. And it was a message from my wife saying baby coming now. Mm-hmm. And you had already paid for the studio. You had already paid for all the musicians. What's the worst that could happen? They record a bunch of stuff that you could never use. You've got a brilliant producer in the room. Your manager's going to be there. You've got a great mixing engineer. You've already paid for it. And if all of those guys want to keep going, why would you say no? Because the, brill- the great thing about recorded music is that if what you recorded is not what you want, you can delete it. Right. So I headed home and they recorded for the rest of the day listening. Thankfully we had pre-production stuff where the scratch vocals were in the key that we were going to record in and in the tempo that we wanted to record in. So that's all I would have been doing anyway, was being isolated in a booth playing scratch acoustic guitar and singing scratch vocals. Um, and as a creator, you don't want to not be there when this thing is happening. But as a human, what's a, what's occurring 1,200 miles away is far more important. So I split 
and those guys um, recorded some really, really great stuff. And we kept, I think they only ended up get, like working on five songs on the record that day. And that's all we did. They canceled the rest of the sessions. None of the guys wanted to be paid. The studio was cool because we were dealing with the family emergency, and um, which was amazing of, of all those guys. And we kept maybe 40 to 50% of what we got on those five songs because those guys did a great job. And there was a part of me that really felt like um, I would be putting out something that felt dis dishonest if I wasn't there every second of the recording process. Mm -hmm. But after listening to what they did and talking with each of them and everything, I really felt like they played their asses off to support me because that's all they knew what they that's all they knew to to do going back and facing a a child that was going to be born prematurely who ended up um spending 37 days in the NICU mm -hmm. um until his lungs started working and was just banging on the door uh, a few minutes ago uh, <laughs> as I was recording this it's totally fine everything worked out um, thanks to the incredible people that that uh, worked on him. But like you could really hear the love and the care in a lot of that stuff. And so we ended up keeping a lot of the things that they recorded that day. And man, I didn't think that I didn't think that I would have to have that experience or talk about it in a podcast or whatever. But right. that's what happened. And Stuff like that happens in our lives all the time where you don't anticipate it. And there would be no reason to be selfish and say, no, I wasn't there. We can't use that. When I really, really felt like listening to it, those guys played their hearts out um, to love and support me, who was going, who was flying immediately home headlong into he didn't know what. Right. Yeah. I just the amount of trust that takes, and I I think you would be surprised how many people wouldn't have that reaction or that faith in the scenario. But then again, from my perspective, I probably haven't talked to you know a whole ton of people who have worked with studio musicians that they trust in that same way that you trusted them. Yeah, um, well, I didn't think that I would trust them. I thought I would hear it and feel like I was listening to stuff that didn't even make sense to me. Right. Stuff that didn't even sound like it should have been on the song. But when I finally got to hear it, it was some of it was magic. Right. How how many days did you find yourself away from the process? We put that... the whole we put the whole thing on hold for 5 months, I think. Okay. I mean, we were literally my wife and I were splitting off 12 hour shifts because we have currently we have a, um, a seven year old and a three year old. So sure. we had a, the three year old is the one that we're talking about here. We had a kid. None of our family lives here. We're East, East Coasters. So everybody's far away. Mm -hmm. um, and we were doing we were splitting 12 hour shifts going driving from here to the Children's Hospital of San Antonio which is maybe 30 minutes away with no traffic right? Um, every day for over a month. And um, 
I would find myself thinking about making that record, and then I would look down at this little tiny human who still couldn't figure out how to breathe on his own and feel like insanely guilty. Yep. Whereas a couple of weeks before he was born, all I felt was excitement and passion about this new record that I was getting ready to make. And I did not, I did not want those two things to intersect anymore. And I called Dave and my manager, Scott, and I was like, I don't know how long, but we got to put this off for a couple of months because I need to know that we're not picking this up again for quite a while before, um, before this kid is better and before this kid is home. Mm-hmm. Because I don't like that I'm thinking about both of these things at the same time. So I just want everybody to know that, like, we're going to, we got to put this on hold. Cause, and everybody, of course, of course, everybody was wonderful about it. And then once we got back into it, we got back into it and it was awesome. Yeah. It's great that that worked out and the album turned out awesome. Um, yeah. Thanks, man. I, I think it's something you should definitely. Definitely be proud of. It's a good. I am. Thank you. Um, I was excited about it. Yeah, it's it's a great listen. So, generally, the way I kind of wrap these things up is I ask a couple questions, and Mm -hmm. I got two more. Um, so the first question is, what have you been listening to lately? Music wise, what's what's on your COVID nineteen quarantine playlist? If you have one, I find well, so many people are like, "Well, I don't really listen to music. I'm spending so much time writing it or working on it." But well, I I'm reading a book uh, that is a compilation of interviews with people that knew Roger Miller really well, and Roger Miller has always been one of my favorite songwriters of all time. So uh, I've been listening to a lot of Roger Miller, but um, I also, um, I also, like I always listen to whatever new pop stuff is coming just because like we talked about earlier, lyrics have always been such a, a foundation of what I do. Mm-hmm. that I love to listen to pop stuff and not listen to any of the lyrics and just try to pay attention to what they're doing melodically sure. just to see if it makes sense to me as a songwriter. Um, so I've been doing a lot of that. Um, but really, if you want to know, when I am cooking breakfast uh, <laughs> for my family, I listen to... Um, our local NPR station, and usually that's talk. At lunchtime, I listen to Lightning 100, which is a station out of Nashville that is kind of freeform, really great at letting you discover um, new music. And then in the evenings when I'm making dinner, I listen to WWOZ, which is a heritage jazz station out of New Orleans because we have this cool streaming radio in our kitchen. And that makes me feel like I got to travel around a little bit over the course of the day. Um, so I've been listening to a lot of jazz and I've been shazamming a lot of songs that I've never heard of. Thanks to lightning 100. Fantastic. Um, so my last, my last question is always this. 
and this is harder the bigger your catalog is. But if you were to take your catalog of music and things you've written and pick one to represent it, which is such an asinine question to ask <laughs> an artist, but I do it anyways. Which song would that be? <laughs> See how to I make an ass to, of myself to, in my to, own to, question? No, <laughs> that's a very, that's a very hard to represent the, like to represent the catalog, to pick one song to be the elevator pitch of your catalog. If you have one song. Right, that's right. The, the, the handshake with people that's going to say, well, shit, I better listen to more. Uh, <laughs> um, I would say, I would say my song 24 Hours in New York City would uh, be my choice because it's very autobiographical and I love the pictures and some of it. Um, and that was the last song that we put on that record. So interesting. We, you know, I wrote it when we were pretty much finished with it. And I wrote it with my friend, Sean McConnell. And I was like, no, 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 you guys, I sent it, I sent it to the producer and Scott. And I was like, you guys listen to this. And they were like, this is great. And I was like, it's gotta be on the record. It's gotta be on the record. We have to do this. That's, so, that's awesome to hear. Cause I will tell you, that is the first song of yours I ever heard. Oh, how about that? Uh, uh, so it, it works. It, it did work. And do you want to <laughs> hear the craziest context about it? I would love to. So when you came out with that song, I had just started diving into the Patrick Droney stuff oh, a yeah. little bit. Yeah. And a buddy of mine who showed me Patrick's music was like, well, hey, listen to this. And I listened to it. And within a week, I shit you not, of hearing 24 Hours in New York City, I had purchased a hotel room in Manhattan before I heard it for one night, and I got plane tickets, and I was going to go to Manhattan on November 17th of 2017 to see Dead & Company play and that song came out within that week. So wow. there I am with that whole soundtrack that doesn't exactly line up with what I was doing, but enough of the sentiment was captured. That's where, wild. Where I'm sitting on the plane in Minneapolis waiting for wheels up so I can hit play on wow. that tune. That's so, wild. And Patrick's playing a little guitar on that song. Yeah. You know, before I let you go, I lied. I have one other question. Yeah. And I'm probably wrong here, but for whatever reason, I thought, did Droney play on Scratch and Dent? He did not. Damn it. Uh, the that only, tone sounded yeah, so familiar to me. I, I know. I know. The only song he played on was 24 Hours in New York City. But, um, man, Patrick is like my little brother. We have probably written, not probably, I know, actually know because we counted it up together. We've written 68 songs together. Oh, wow. And that dude is a monster. He's not only one of the best human beings I know, he's one of the best guitar players that I know. He's one of the best songwriters that I know. He's quickly becoming one of the best producers that I know. Mm -hmm. And, I mean, that guy, that guy is killer. Like, I was so happy to... Um, to have been a writer on the wire his most yeah his most recent single the wire because we've written so many together and it's funny that's another one 
when we finished writing it, I felt like I took the SATs. And I was just like, I don't know. I don't. He was like, is this awesome? And I was like, I don't know. I don't know if this is awesome. And then the next day I listened to it and I was like, okay, this is awesome. This is definitely awesome. So That's great. Uh, yeah, he's the best, man. I hope that guy becomes the, the biggest thing in music because he, he has the work ethic for it. And, man, he, he deserves it. Yeah, he's got a hell of a skill set. Yes, he does. Just like you, my friend. Well, well, I appreciate that. I certainly, I appreciate your music, and I appreciate the time you've given me here today. I don't want to take all of your evening. Um, well, I, I appreciate you, Kyle. Man, it's really nice to talk, uh, to talk songs and, and to do this, especially now when any sort of connection. I know I saw your post. I know that this will come out in June, mm-hmm. so I hate to make it seem uh, anything less than fresh to your listeners. But we are um, we are sitting here on April second, and um, anything that gets me feeling like I might have just hung out with you for an hour in Minnesota is a welcome distraction. So thank you very much for having me on the podcast today. Wonderful. Well, much appreciated. Yeah, you bet, brother. Well. Well, take care, man. I really appreciate you doing this. You um, too. Hey, uh, be in touch, man. Now, now that we've talked, now that I feel like we're friends, be in touch. Uh, shoot me a line every once in a while. Let me know how you're doing. Will do. Sounds good. All right, Kyle. Have a good rest of your night, buddy. You too. Stay healthy, stay safe. Keep the family healthy and safe. All right. As I've been saying to my friends before I hang up, hey, man, just don't die. <laughs> Take care. Twenty-four hours in New York City. Grab that apple right off of the tree. Pull in a Grand Central Station and be who we wanna be. Fresh off the boat from a landlocked ocean. Lit a smoke in the land of the Got 24 hours in New York City. Saxophone in a subway station. Couple bucks in a Yankees cap. Cheap cologne and ammonia dance their way down the track. Up the stairs into a concrete jungle Taxi cabs like a pride alliance Come on, Jane, time's a-wasting Let's go swinging on those power line vines 24 hours in New York City Grab that apple right off of the tree Put in a Grand Central Station And be who we want Fresh off the boat from a landlocked ocean Lit a smoke in the land of the free Held it up in the sky like the Statue of Liberty We've got 24 hours in New York City